that you do. If you can open with me to the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And uh, we're going to start in chapter 1 and then go to chapter 9 and then kind of go all over the place. But welcome to week 11 of a 12-week series that has us walking through um, the minor prophets. And again, as we remind you every week, minor um, only means shorter. It does not mean less important. And I pray that as we've walked through these 11 weeks or 10 weeks now, heading to 11, that we have come to see that these minor prophets contain some pretty major messages. They demonstrate God's faithfulness to keep his promises throughout all of the turmoil and chaos of sin and destruction in the world. They, they speak of hope and redemption um, in a time where the world seemed dark and meaningless. We read the minor prophets and study them to see God's love for his people no matter what. We, we read the minor prophets to learn to place our hope in the one who came and the one who, who is coming to fulfill all of his promises to his people. And this morning we come to the book of Zechariah. And his name means Yahweh remembers, which is an amazing summary um, of the book that bears his name. Zechariah prophesied um, to the people of Judah after they returned from the 70 years or their 70 years in exile in Babylon. He encouraged them to complete the work of rebuilding the temple. So he was sent by God to encourage the people. There's a story often attributed to Christopher Wren, um, the architect appointed to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral after the great fire of 1666 um, that leveled London. The story goes that when Wren was visiting the work site for St. Paul's, he came across a bricklayer uh, busy working away, and he asked him what he was doing. The worker replied, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying bricks. A little later, Wren came um, across a second bricklayer and asked him what he was doing, and he replied, I'm earning a living. Finally, he came across a third bricklayer and asked him what he was doing, and the bricklayer replied with a gleam in his eye, I am building a great cathedral for Almighty God. And I think uh, it begs the question for us, why do we do what we do? Do we do it just because we have to? Do we do it to earn a living or do we do it for the glory of God? And don't, don't you in any means kid yourself and think, well, I'm not in ministry, therefore um, I only do it to make a living. No, everything that we are allowed to do, even our jobs, are meant for the glory of God are meant for his glory. But let me um, get back on track. So continuing on, um, Zechariah was a contemporary of, as we saw last week, as Jordan took us through the book of um, Haggai, or Haggai, um, whereas Haggai is entirely practical, what we're going to see is Zechariah is entirely visual, meaning um, it is an apocalyptic book along the lines of Daniel, along the lines of the book of Revelation, meaning it is hard for us to understand. And so just, just think with me about this, and we're going to come to see this in just a few minutes. How many of you have ever woken up out of a, a sleep, sweating profusely with your heart beating out of your chest because you had a bad dream? Anybody? So a few of us have done that. And what we know is that dreams can be caused by indigestion. They can be caused by anxiety, desires, concerns, other mental and emotional conditions. Dreams can be fun. They can be entertaining, even enlightening. But dreams can also invoke fear, stress, and outright terror. I remember a few months ago, Misty woke up and she said, I had a bad dream last night where you did something bad and therefore I'm not going to speak to you this morning just as a warning. 
And I was like, well, I have no idea what I did. How can... So anyway, that was that. But um, so what we know is that Zechariah, God's prophet in Jerusalem, more than 500 years before the time of Christ, had a series, get this, a series of nightmare experiences that kept him awake for a week. So just imagine that. Um, more than mere dreams, these were visions that God was giving him concerning God's future um, for his people. And so what God did is in these visions or in these dreams, God gave a message for Zechariah that Zechariah faithfully retold to his family, to his friends, to his neighbors, to his countrymen, and to us that we are able to be a part of. So what we know and what we're going to see this morning is while this book is filled with visions and prophecies and signs um, and celestial visitors and the voice of God, it also deals with issues like repentance, divine care, salvation, holy living. And here's what we know when we think about the book of Zechariah. Prophecy was soon going to be silent for over 400 or for 400 years. So right after the book of Malachi, there was no prophetic visions for 400 years. Zechariah almost um, towards the end of that. Um, it was broken when an angel came in the book of Luke to a guy named Zechariah. So just kind of amazing how God does that with the birth, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. So what God is using here is God is using Zechariah to bring an abundant outburst of promise uh, for the future to sustain the people through the years of silence that God was going to speak and God was going to give them something to hope in a promise of the Messiah in fact it's kind of amazing to think about a book that we don't often read Zechariah is second only to the book of Isaiah in references to Christ among the prophets so um, this is a pretty amazing book that we often um, find ourselves ignoring. So Zechariah was not only a prophet, he was also a priest. And get this, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 and 35, when Jesus is speaking to the, the, the Pharisees, he says this, I send you prophets, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, so the first martyr in the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the last martyr in the Old Testament, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So this seems, Jesus seems to be giving us a clear reference to how this prophet, Zechariah, would be killed. So the prophet, the priest of God, gave his life declaring the message of God, gave his life serving the people of God. Kind of as the words of Pascal put it, I believe the witness who gets his throat cut. So just in case you needed more reason to believe this book, alongside the fact that it's God's word, um, here's another reason that this prophet gave his life um, for this message. So this morning, um, thinking about the book of Zechariah, the first eight chapters are primarily concerned with rebuilding the temple. And then the last six chapters deal with the end times, the last things, the work of Christ, the return of Christ. So what we're going to do now is we're going to turn our attention to the book of Zechariah. We're going to see the God who remembers, the God who is working to fulfill his purposes, the God who is giving hope to his people, and the God who is giving hope um, to all people for all the earth. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read Zechariah 1, 1 through 6, and then turn to chapter 9 and read verses 16 and just the first 
um, sentence of verse 17. So beginning at chapter 1 and verse 1, when you get there, let me hear you say. So verse 1, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servant the prophets, did they overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now look at chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 16 and the very first sentence of verse 17. So God dealt with his people because of his sin, and now this is what God would do. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And I love this, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you and we declare how great your goodness is towards us. And oh God, you are beautiful. You are holy. You are magnificent. God, your glory is shining in ways, Lord, that we can't even see. We can't even behold, Lord, yet your glory is shining forth. Father, your glory is shining forth from your word. Every book, every chapter, every word. And today, we don't want to miss that, Lord, just because we come to a, a book that we often skip over. Lord, show us everything we need to see from this book today. Speak to us, God. We are a needy people in need of you, a great and awesome God. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at this picture of Zechariah and hope for all the earth. And here's what I know and here's what I pray that you come to know. We as Christians, um, guess what? We struggle. We are a struggling people. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with fear. We struggle with insecurity. We struggle with opposition to the message that Jesus is the only way to God. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with our own failures and the devil's accusations against us that make us sometimes question whether God accepts us. We struggle with the work that God has given us to do. And we struggle to believe God for the future, which means we often struggle to have hope in the present. And we struggle in those areas. And think about this. Others outside of the church maybe struggle because they have fallen prey to false ideas. Or maybe they have been deceived by false priorities. In Zechariah's day, here's what we know. Israel had returned from exile, but home was certainly not all they had hoped for. It wasn't the way it used to be. It wasn't the way they had remembered it being, or they were told that it was. And Zechariah's task was to encourage the struggling people of God. Kind of the same um, mission that many ministers have today in our world, is encourage 
people of God, giving hope, not just to them, but giving hope as Zechariah would to all of the earth. So what we want to do this morning in the time that we have remaining is we want to unpack today three truths concerning the hope that Zechariah was proclaiming to the earth then and, of course, for us now. And let me just remind you again that as we study the book of Zechariah and all of the minor prophets, the goal is not to um, tell every single event in every single book. In fact, Zechariah, 14 chapters, have a hard time doing that. But just to take some of the things that rise up from these books that kind of um, tell us a, a big overall picture of what God is doing. So the first truth is this. When we think about hope for all the earth, number one, there is hope because of the character of God. There is hope because of the character of God. And I love this because God used Zechariah to tell his people that God was, was giving them a second chance. And let me just say this this morning, just to hope to awaken some of our affections for God. We serve a God of forgiveness. We serve a God of patience. We serve a God of grace. Our Lord stoops down to us again and again and again, not because we're deserving, but because His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. And if He weren't faithful, if His mercies weren't new every morning, there would be no hope for any of us. We would be in trouble. And I, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you've done this week. But I do know this. You can have a fresh start today. I know that. And there's an enemy that would have you believe that you're done. There's an enemy that would have you believe that you're stuck. And that there's no hope for you. But yet we must hear this truth again and again and again. And that is this. Our God is a God of second chances. Aren't we glad? One person's glad of that. The rest of you, I guess you're still in your first chance and still doing well. But most of the two of us in here today, um, we, are, we are thankful that God is a God of second chances. And there are, are many examples of that in Scripture. In fact, if the Bible had a hall of shame, I think it would probably contain most of the names that we find in Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith. Think, think with me about this. Noah was found drunk by his sons. Abraham trafficked his wife, Sarah. Sarah showed distrust for the word of God. Jacob lived his life by scheming and trusting in himself. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Rahab, a prostitute, lied in order to protect spies, but also to protect herself. And David hired someone to murder and then also committed adultery. So think about that list of shameful events. And yet, yet in spite of every immoral behavior, God showed himself to be merciful and gracious. And the same mercy that God poured on each of these examples, God also poured on his people, Israel. And God was desiring to do that to them again. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 1. And it says this, I love this picture. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. Return to me. Just listen to the heart of God saying, return to me. In his classic study, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, It is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand that it confronts us with the, the truth. And it says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner, 
Now come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you. He does not want a sacrifice. He does not want your effort. He wants you alone. And the truth of that is hard for us to understand that. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But the picture is God wants us back even when we have blown it. Even when we are finding it hard to trust in Him. Now here's what I know about me and maybe I know this about you. We love stability. We love stable foundations. We love stable relationships. We love stable employment. We love stable finances. We love stable health. We love things just to be across the board, stable, good, fine, perfect, the way they should be. Most of us work really hard to establish and maintain a reasonable, reasonable excuse me, level of predictable outcomes. Um, where we like things this way and we work to keep things that way. We like calm seas. We like sure footing. We love the idea of world peace. So we like all of those things. But the problem is, in spite of our best efforts, we live and learn that life is inherently unstable. And this is unsettling for us. For those who like control we come to realize that we don't have control. That things are outside of our control. We come to realize that the earth oftentimes gives way. Things that we trust in crumble. Mountains quake. Oceans roar. Enemies rise up against us. Fear oftentimes grip us. All these things happen, yet, think about this, amid all of life's uncertainty and all the turmoil that we face, we are invited to find a stronghold. We are invited to find a refuge in God alone. In fact, think about this. He identifies himself in the book of Zechariah over and over again, these first six verses, as the Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth, or the God of heaven's armies. Think about that phrase, the Lord of hosts. It appears 261 times in the Old Testament. He is the one, the Lord of hosts, is the one who is able, who's able to change the face of the earth. He's able to subdue roaring enemies, raging enemies by his word alone. Everything in all of creation bows the knee to his divine authority. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 14, he is said to be the Lord of the whole earth. In chapter 6, verse 5, he is, again, the Lord of all the earth. This is who he is. And from his unshakable, from his immovable throne in heaven, this sovereign God tenderly speaks to our hearts the word of, words of Psalms 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. This one who is, has all control over all things, who is the Lord of all the earth, speaks into our hearts saying, Be still and know that I am God. But here's what I know. There is one problem with us accepting that divine invitation we don't like to be still. We have a hard time being still. Anybody else out there 
have a hard time being still. Yet, we're called by God to rest in His power, to rest in His presence, to rest in the one who's able to deliver us, the one who can protect us. We're able to, um, we're, we're called to rest in the God who rules the nations, who melts the mountains, but also knows the ever-diminishing number of hairs on my head. This is the God that we are called to trust in. As the Lord of hosts, He is the all-powerful ruler over the entire universe, yet at the same time, He hears our cries for help. He hears us when we call to Him. There is no other God besides Him, but there's no other God like this. And ultimately, he will bring human events to the end that he chooses. And I love this because this God does not tell Zechariah to do much of anything else except to look and see. God tells him over and over again, look and see, look and see, look and see. And the same thing, we're not lectured here to do a bunch of stuff. Here's the beautiful picture we are shown in the book of Zechariah because who God is, what God will do. He will rule the world. He will judge his people's enemies. He will dwell with his people. He will protect them. He will send his Messiah. He will cleanse the sin of the guilty. This is a picture of who he is. This is his character, brothers. This is who the Bible reveals him to be. And let me just remind us of something today. Our hope is not to be in ourselves. If you are hoping in yourselves or hoping in some other human relationship, you will be most disappointed. Our hope is in who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised that he will do. But let me just say this very clearly. You cannot hope in a God that you don't know. You can't hope in a God that you don't know. The more we spend time beholding him, the more we will come to hope in him. The more we spend time understanding who he is, what he has promised, how he has fulfilled his promises, the easier it will be to hope in him. This is the God of the second chance. This is the Lord of all the earth. This is our God. So there is hope because of the character of God. But then secondly, there is hope because of the word of God. There is hope because of this word, because of what we have. And think about this. In the first six chapters, we are introduced to eight visions or dreams that the Lord gives the prophet Zechariah. Now, if your Bible has subheadings, you can kind of follow along with me here, beginning at, at chapter 1, and you can kind of see um, how each of these dreams is defined or identified. In chapter um, 1, verses 7 through 17, we are introduced to a vision of a horseman. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, we're introduced to a vision of horns and a craftsman. In chapter 2, 1 through 12, a vision of a man with a measuring line. In chapter 3, 1 through 10, this is my favorite vision, a vision of Joshua the high priest. In chapter 4, 1 through 14, a vision of a golden lampstand. In chapter 5, 1 through 4, a vision of a flying Scroll. I had to make sure I wrote down squirrel today. That just wouldn't make a whole lot of sense of a vision of a flying squirrel. So it's a flying scroll. Um, chapter 5, 5 through 11, a vision of a woman in a basket. And chapter 6, 1 through 8, a vision of four chariots. 
And without trying to go in depth and look at all of these visions, let me just say this. They present to us a God who is beyond our understanding, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways. And you can read those exact words in Isaiah chapter 55. The problem with us is that many of us want a God who is only slightly bigger than us and only slightly smarter than we are. But the God of the Bible is something altogether different. Here's the irony. Only a God like this, only a God like uh, that is described in the book of, of Zechariah, only this God is able to sustain our faith in the midst of storms, is able to ignite our passions when they begin to wane. Only a God like this is able to give us confidence when we are facing suffering and hardships in this world. I love what the British philosopher Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Let me say it again. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. And so, so then we come to chapter 7 and 8. In chapter 7 and 8, we have two sermons that begin in chapter 7, verse 1, and in chapter 8, verse 1, with the same words. The word of the Lord came. So the first sermon explains how or the terrible consequences that overtook the people of Israel because, get this, because they ignored the word of God. And then the second sermon in chapter 8 explains how God will reestablish um, his people because of his grace. He will give them a new start. He will give them a fresh start because of his grace. But let's look back quickly at chapter 7. Look at chapter 7 beginning at verse 8. It says this, this, this message Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let um, none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So think about that. And then look at verse 11 and 12. But they refused to pay attention. And turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. That's when you stop and just think about the words we just heard. God told them to do this. They stopped their ears and refused to listen to the word of God, hardening their own hearts. In fact, God describes their hearts as being diamond hard, which begs the question for us, what are we refusing to hear from God's word? Are we plugging our ears and are we refusing to hear that which is pointing us away from death or away from destruction and pointing us to life, yet we refuse to hear it? Are we hardening our hearts to God's word, the, the, the words that we don't like, we just harden our hearts to it? Let me just say this, brothers and sisters, we must listen to God's word, for this is how God speaks, and this is how God loosens our hearts and breaks our hearts from the hardness that we oftentimes bring upon our hearts by ignoring it. Listen, we can, I know, I know us as humans, we love to hear things we agree with. Especially if it flatters us, we love it. 
If it tells us how good we are, we love it. If it tells us we're good, we're smart, and people like us, we love it. If it tells us we're wrong, we don't like it much. But here's the reality. We will gain little from, from words that tell us how great we are. But we will, if we will stand and listen to God's correction, we will begin to benefit from God's word in a way that will be good for us in a way that will be for our good. In fact, a very profitable way to even read the book of of Zechariah is to mark everywhere where God says he is going to do something for good or, or something good for Jerusalem. And what you will find is over 50 references where God says, I'm going to do this for you. Let me just give you a little history. In 605 B.C., long before the book of Zechariah, the prophet Jeremiah predicted that the nation um, of Jerusalem um, would fall to the newly established Babylonian Empire. He predicted the city of Jerusalem would fall, its temple would be destroyed, and he warned the Jews that they would be marched into exile. But he also issued an amazing prediction that after 70 years, the Jews would return to Judah They would repopulate Jerusalem and they would rebuild their temple. And that is exactly what happened. Why? Because God's word cannot fail. God's word endures. Therefore, there is hope in and through the word of God. God has spoken. Hope can be ours. How will we respond to God's word? What will we do with it? There is hope because of the word of God. May we find our hope in it. And then lastly, there is hope because of the Son of God. There is hope because of the Son of God. And we will now in just a second look at two passages that describe um, who, where, and how God's salvation will come. Zechariah chapter 9 provides us with a picture of a king who rides on a donkey. And for the ancient Jewish crowd, here's what they knew. The alternate mode of transportation for a king was not on a donkey, but on a war horse, um, going out to war. So the fact that this king was on a donkey means um, that he wasn't looking for war. He was promoting peace. Something to think about in just a second. Then we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, which gives... More information about how God will bring restoration to his people. Meaning that he will pour out his spirit on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which as Zechariah's vision makes very clear also includes all nations. They will mourn because of how they pierced God. And when they mourn for how they've wounded God, God will cleanse them from their sin. So look with me at chapter 9 and verse 9. So chapter 9 of Zechariah, verse 9. When you get there... Okay, when the rest of you get there, or when you just want me to read and go on with the message. All right, there we go. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was fulfilled in Matthew 21 when Jesus comes in the triumphal entry. What we call Palm Sunday fulfilled this prophecy. Now look at chapter 12 and verse 10. In chapter 12 and verse 10. And when you get there, it says this. And I will pour out 
on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And look at chapter 13, verse 1. Here's what God will do for those that have mourned. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is so much in this little book of Zechariah about Jesus. As I said, Zechariah is, is quoted more than any other book of the Old Testament in the Gospels of Counts of the Crucifixion. So in the book of Zechariah, Christ is the good shepherd. He's the rejected one. He's the one who is pierced and stricken for us. In the Gospel of John, John recounts the crucifixion and includes the story of the soldier who pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And then he quotes Zechariah 12.10 and declares that it has been fulfilled. Yet consider even further what, what the Lord is saying in this verse, Zechariah 12.10. It says, when they look on him, that is a future tense. When they look in the future on him, then it says this, on him that they have pierced, that's past tense. So looking in the future on something that's happened in the past. So think about this. Who is this? It's the Lord. But how could someone pierce the Lord? Now, we would say only if he had flesh. So only, the only way God could be pierced is if God had flesh. Well, what we know when Christ came, he took on What? He took on flesh. So here's the next question. How could they look on one if they had already killed him and pierced him in the past? And the only way they could look on him is if he lived again. So what we have here is that in Zechariah, God himself comes as our Messiah deliverer. God himself comes as the one who has risen from the dead, the one who has been um, killed for us, and he comes as one who has conquered death, and he comes as one who will come again. When we get to chapter 14, uh, verse 9 of Zechariah, it says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and this name one. Let me just end this way. Just outside of Madrid is a famous old monastery. It's called the Escorial. And I probably butchered that, but maybe you haven't visited, so you don't know any better. But the kings of Spain have been buried there for centuries. The architect who built the church made an arch so low that it frightened the king. Fearing that it would collapse, he ordered the architect to add a column underneath to uphold the middle of the arch. The architect, of course, protested that it was not necessary, it was not needed, but the king insisted that the column be built. Years later, the king died, and the architect, after the king's death, revealed that the column that he built to support this low arch was a quarter of an inch short of touching the arch, meaning it was never built in order to hold it up. And he also revealed that the low arch that he had built had not sagged one inch. In fact, um, many tour guides even today will still pass a lath or a, a thin, flat um, strip of wood between the 
um, arch and the column that was built as proof of the architect's knowledge and as proof of his work. Now, what does that even mean for us? Here's what it means. This arch illustrates for us our salvation, which comes totally from the Lord. Our salvation stands not because of us, but because of God. Our salvation stands not because of anything we add to it. It stands on its own because of what God has done for us through His Son. But here's the problem. Just like the Spanish king, many people want to try to add something to salvation in order to help God out. The idea that salvation is totally from God is an affront to them. Because in their minds, they think, surely, if you just tell me to do something for my salvation, I'll do it. And yet, what does Jesus say? It's impossible with man. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. So here's the beautiful thing. Many people keep adding their columns and their columns and their columns and their columns. But God's word shows us that God's salvation does not need our human support. God's mighty power will save his people according to his mighty word and according to his son. Christ is the king who has come. And according to Zechariah, he is the king who is coming again. Christ is the one who was pierced for us, yet he will be looked upon by all because, get this, he lives. And Christ is the one who was rejected and he is coming to receive all who will receive him. Which ends in this way, where does our hope lie? If this, the, the book of Zechariah shows us the hope of all the earth, where does our hope lie? Can we make any of this happen? And the answer is no. We can't do any, we can't make any of this happen. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make God keep his word. God is going to keep his word. There's nothing we can do to secure hope in this world or in the world to come. So what must we do? And I wish I had time to get into um, this, but I'm going to show you one more verse. It's probably one of the most well-known verses in the book of Zechariah. It's Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. And this isn't just the theme verse of the book of Zechariah, let me just say this, brothers and sisters, this is, the, this is the theme verse of the whole Bible. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, meaning us, not by power, meaning us, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The whole Bible screams to us, it's not happening because of you. It's not happening because of what you have done or what you can do. It is by my spirit, says the Lord, that it will be. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us hope in that. Let us hope in that forever and ever and ever. Let us not hope in ourselves. Let us not look to ourselves. Let us look away from ourselves to the one whom God has sent and let us hope in him. I'm going to ask you to stand in this moment. We're going to ask Brother Frank and the musicians to come forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we come to you now. And Lord, we thank you that you sent a prophet, your prophet Zechariah, not only to just give hope to the people of Jerusalem, but to give hope to us now. Some 2,500 years after this writing, we can have hope 
through what this prophet wrote. That we aren't looking to ourselves, that we are looking to the one whom you sent. We are looking to your word. We are trusting in your character. And we know that you have sent your son who is himself the prince of peace. And we know that Jesus came and he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. Your word says that Christ died for our sin. But your word also says that three days later he rose again. Therefore, we who pierced him can also trust in him and see him because he lives. Oh God, help us to see that our only hope for this world, our only hope for the world to come is Jesus. Help us to lean all that we are upon him and upon all that he has done for us. Lord, help us to never get sucked in and believing that we have to add something to what he has done. For Jesus plus something equals nothing, yet Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Help us to trust Jesus plus nothing as our hope now and our hope forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.